left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. We are building a community of investors who are interested in acquiring real assets that produce real cash flow. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Why farmland? Well, number one, it's a uncorrelated to anything asset class. Number two, it is a real asset that you can own the land and control it. And number three, it's intergenerational wealth, which is consistent and inflation proof, which is very important given what's happening in today's world. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy, not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place, so you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community. This is Brian Burke from Praxis Capital, and you are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Today, I'm very pleased to have Peter Badger with us. He is the Chief Strategy Officer at Farmfolio. Their mission is to make farmland ownership easy for everyone. Peter's been an avid real estate investor for years and an educator with a current focus on overseas farmland. And I'm really excited to get into a new asset class today. So Peter, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Thanks, Jim. Pleasure to be here. The way we like to start is to kind of figure out your journey. Now, I know, I know you're sitting in a motorhome. So when I ask you how you got here, I don't mean <laughs> wherever you're camping right now. I mean, how did you get to where you are in real estate? How did you get to farmland? And then how did you get to overseas farmland? So as much as you can kind of tell us is, your journey to get here, we'd, we'd love to hear it. Yes, I, I think actually I'd rather focus on the current knowledge and what we do from an investing standpoint, my uh, partner Kiki and I, because you know the journey and lineage is important, but more importantly, I want to leave some stuff behind. So I spent 18 years on Wall Street. I was a tech guy. So I was building sales, trading, and research systems. I got a real insight into how financial markets work. Then I went to Silicon Valley, started my own tech company, went through the whole VC funding, Series A, Series B, ended up getting acquired by Citrix Systems in um, California. But more importantly, therefore, I got to the journey probably 2014. You know, I had my own house, white picket fence, drove a Tesla, all the stuff that you kind of aspire to in life. But once I had an exit in the tech space, I was like, okay, I need to be serious about how do I keep this money and grow it? And really, my real estate journey started you know, less than seven years ago. And it was basically 
bought a couple of single-family homes, which then became 21 single-family homes, realized they'd gone too far, backed out of them with 1031s, got into Moa Home Park, did some multifamily, put a couple of buildings in Tampa, went overseas, did a couple of short-term rentals on the beach in Mexico, got a short-term rental in Florida, which myself and uh, my partner Kiki went all over the place trying to find the right asset class to invest in and to grow. And, uh, and ultimately, where this journey landed us today, post-pandemic, which is a really important data point, which we'll probably talk about today, the two asset classes that survived and thrived for us are multifamily syndications and farm real estate. That is seven years, over 50 investments, and a lot of pain full-time doing this. That's interesting because you know, you've had quite the journey with the single-family homes, the mobile home parks, multifamily, short-term rentals. You've gone through a bunch of different asset classes. And then to land where you are and finally figure out, okay, here's where I think the, the value is. I mean, that, that's what we're all looking for, right? I mean, I've chased the shiny object plenty of times, and I still do a little bit more than I'd like to. But now I have a strategy. I have, I'm pretty confident in what I'm doing. And it sounds like you've kind of landed in the same place. That's right. And I think to me, it came around to, um, we are a combination of our experience and our baggage, let's call it. So, you know, I lived through 2001 where I had an independent financial advisor on Wall Street, by the way, because we had to let them run our portfolio because of conflict issues. And they basically diversified my entire 401k into technology in year 2000. Now, wow. And so when you lose 80% of your portfolio in the stock market, because it was diversified, quote, into tech, and then it went to 2008. I mean, to me, I got down the path of, honestly, I'm no longer going to leave the control of my assets to a third party person like the sentiment of Wall Street traders. Because we've been through this game. Yeah, Wall Street will tell you, honestly, you need a diversified set of indexes, ETFs, mutual funds, you know, small cap, big cap, a bit of international exposure. It's all correlated nowadays. The markets move up and down globally. So yes, we've been on a great run. Yes, the Fed's been propping up this entire bull market for the past six, seven years, definitely. Shouldn't bet against the Fed. But at some point, it will cyclically tank. And therefore, the question for me was, Let's get my wealth into real assets, property, buildings, infrastructure. I mean, farms. It just makes so much sense because they're, frankly, they're not even counter-cyclical. In the case of farmland, for instance, it's not correlated in any fashion with the public markets. You have a farm, you sell the fruit, people still need to eat. It's nothing to do with the stock market. And that's where I've landed personally. You've got to get, yeah, you know, fine, put a portion in the stock market, go for the growth during the boom years, but you'll die from timing it. So therefore, just take your core of your wealth, which is what we've done, and split it between multifamily syndications and farm real estate. Real assets. Yeah, real assets that produce real income. That's kind of our motto here at Leftfield Investors. So, you know, the next question then would be, I get the multifamily because we do that all the time. We understand that. We talk about it constantly. Farmland. Why farmland? Yeah. So so here's my journey and you'll your listeners will appreciate this. So when I had 21 single-family homes, my partner, Kiki, who I met at the same time, had three. So we had 24 between us. 
let's just say that we had a lot of issues with the three T's, trash, tenants, and toilets. And we therefore went into multifamily to scale that because then you had one roof versus 24, et cetera, et cetera. I understand the analogy. But I think for what I realized was you're always going to live or die by the operator or the property manager if you own the asset and have a third-party property manager of your own. And so we found some amazing operators. We've done full due diligence. We've got our, you know, let's call it portfolio of multifamily syndications, mostly value-add in growing markets with low crime, class B, if you can, and it's going incredibly well. We have, you know, solid value-add period, cash-out refi. Our buildings are appreciating. We're steady state. 8% cash-on-cash return is the goal. And that all works perfectly with some really good operators. But it took us years to get those operators right. But ultimately, you're still dealing with the trash tenants and toilets, or somebody is. And so when you look at that, we spend an enormous amount of time getting into a multifamily syndication, and then they control how long I'm in it. They control how long they keep the property, and generally the flavor of that appreciation and or cash flow profile. What I've now done in the farm space is we've basically taken this, you own the real estate, you control it by owning titles to the real estate, but instead of a single family home or a multifamily building, you have, for instance, on a plot of land, 220 Tahiti lime trees. And there's no trash tenants or toilets. There's no air conditioning going wrong. You know, There's no tenant moving out. Now, do you have different risks? Absolutely. The risks of farming risks, You know, the weather, climate, soils. Um, you have a farm manager instead of property manager. So you're swapping one set of risks for another set of risks. You know, It isn't you know, risk-free. Nothing is risk-free in life. But from my perspective, I realized in interviewing people in Silicon Valley who had big wealth that they move a portion, and some very high net worth individuals, by the way, I was informed by some quality people, have between 14 and 22% of their personal wealth in farmland or forestry assets. And the reason for that is because they control it. Number two, they basically do it for longevity and intergenerational wealth. So in the case of my formless family syndication, yeah, great. I can hold this thing for five, seven, 10 years based on what the operator decides is best for us. They should know that. They're the experts in that market. But I can basically plant a coconut tree. I can wait five years for produce. And then that tree grows for 60 years straight. So not only is it giving me income today, it's also going to pass intergenerationally down to my daughters, uh, my partners, sons, and our family members. And so I think for me, it was a why farmland? Well, number one, it's a uncorrelated to anything asset class. Number two, it is a real asset. You can own the land and control it. And number three, it's intergenerational wealth, which is consistent and inflation proof, which is really important given what's happening in today's world. Yeah. Can you talk about the control aspect? Because so you're saying I could sell the property anytime I want, but I do have a property manager or a farm manager. Can you kind of compare that to the syndication space? Because I'm not sure I understand what the benefits of the control is because I still need a manager. I think some of we talked earlier, I think some of these investments are overseas. Some might also be local. So I, I don't know if I want control of a lime tree in Honduras, right? I That's not something I want under my control. So you can talk a little bit about how it works, maybe. No, absolutely. And uh, and what we actually did was, I'm with a company called Farmfolio now. I basically invested with these guys in their syndications for five years. And I was so impressed with what the team 
Dax, Oscar and the crew are doing that I ended up joining them earlier this year. And part of the reason was because I finally found a farm asset class ownership model that worked for me and my partner Kiki. Because generally, you will see farmland syndications. You have exactly the same characteristics of a multifamily syndication. You're relying upon the operator of everything. But what we did together, because I raised money for these deals and we kind of uh, worked on this business model together, was we realized that farms need to be managed in their entirety for efficiency, for operational efficiency. You can understand the scale from that perspective if you correlate to the multifamily situation. But rather than going down the syndication path, what we do is we break up these big farms into individual lots. So I'll give an example. There's a farm we're offering right now. There's 103 lots on it, and they're 0.64 of a hectare, and they contain 220 Tahiti lime trees on average. Now, the question is, is I want control. So what we allow you to do is allow you to actually take title in your lots, one or many. We've got people who buy one, three, five, ten. Depends on the passive income amount they're looking for. They back into a monthly passive income amount. You therefore take titles of the land, therefore you control the land. But then what we've done is actually, as a title holder to that land, we've now gone and built the corollary of an HOA, Homeowners Association. We call it an FOA, Farmowners Association. Because when you think about an HOA, what does an HOA do in a you know, subdivision housing estate or a shared situation like that? Or you have an administrator who takes care of the common areas, the clubhouse, the pool, etc. We've correlated those terms to a farm. So if you're part of the FOA, it has an administrator. That administrator manages the farm manager on your behalf. And they do all the you know, phytosanitary control. They do the harvesting. They manage the shipment of your fruit down to a pack house where it gets washed, sorted, packed, shipped overseas. And then they manage the income checks coming in from the fruit sales as they're sold to Walmart, Costco, Trader Joe's, Albertsons, and public in the US. So this FOA structure gives you that beautiful control of the land itself. So you can hang on to this as long as you want. But then you have an administrator, an FOA team who are managing that farm on your behalf at scale for all owners of those parcels together, all 103 lots. So the returns I get are not from my plot of land. They're, they're merged with everybody else. For... Absolutely. Collectively, okay. because farming is an uneven practice, you know? Yeah. I say an average of 220 Tahiti lime trees that have, because ultimately you'll have a bit of a rocky patch. You may have five missing. The other guy might have another 12. Another girl down the road may have another four. You know, it averages out. So what we ensure is that you can actually farm at scale with efficiency, with operational efficiency. Then take one one hundred and third of the income minus one one hundred and third of the expenses and give out to each title holder. That's how it works. So talking about that, what what are the typical returns? You know, cash on cash return. How long do I have to wait before returns? Because this is it's almost like development, right? Some of the times I avoid development deals because I want cash flow now. So is that similar here? This is not really a cash flow now play. And then what's the time frames? So it can be a cash flow now. So we've just launched our fourth farm. The first three farms were cash flow now. We essentially built the pack house. We started selling the fruit to Walmart, Costco, etc. And therefore, we were just like channeling that cash flow to the Colombian farmers where these farms happen to live in, in the country of Colombia. Incredible place to do agriculture. 
multi-generational, great climate, you know, all the positive reasons why you should farm there. And so what we had was all these farms delivering their fruit to our packhouse door, selling them through food sales and distribution channels. We went back and bought those farms off the Colombian farmers. So in the case of the first three farms, all of those trees were four years or more in age. Therefore, they were already producing the product. And that was the beauty of that for me was that I didn't have to have patient capital and wait three to five to seven years, depending on the crop. The current farm, we actually have 22,542 lime trees aged between one year and four years. So we already know that there's a 26% of the farm, I think it is, are four years old. They're right now being harvested, sold in Walmart and Costco. The rest of those trees are growing up in age. So it's actually 15 months to net positive income across the whole farm. And why we did this, honestly, is because it's kind of like a multifamily value add. It's actually a farm value add. You already know the farm can produce because 26% of the farm has the fruits being produced and being sold overseas. All you're doing is you're waiting a time frame of 15 months so that over 50% of those trees are four years or more and therefore producing fruit overall for a net positive net flow. So there is massive appreciation in this farm. Over the next 10 years, you can expect a, an average um, rate of return after the 15-month wait of around 18 to 22%, which for a real asset is a dream for consistency. What's the exit? I know these are generally longer-term holds than, say, a multifamily. I mean, you're not flipping the farm after three or five years. So am I holding this forever until those trees die and we replant new ones? Or what, what's the typical hold period? Well, so you need to worry if there's two answers to this question. Number one is what's the mortality of the crop that you're farming? So in the case of the hybrid coconut trees, the offering last year will be a new offering in the new year. We have a mortality rate of 60 to 80 years. So you can hold it long term. In the case of Tahiti lime trees, it's actually a 20 to 24 year harvest. And they're, they're like human beings, trees are. You know, you don't just drop dead one day. You know, they'll decline in production. So you'll run a bit slower and you'll have a few, you know, <laughs> issues with your health. That's what happened to trees. And so you start to see the production declining at year 20 and just really declining year 24. So you may hold your lime farm product for 20 years and just keep getting the cash flow. No problem. For those of you who want to exit early because life happens, People need to either get some cash quickly or not. We actually have a secondary market. So if you think about this, Jim, if I turn around to you and say that you have a farm here that has been running for five years, producing 18% returns, then I absolutely can find you an investor or owner to purchase that off you with that track record. And so in the same way that we offer new farms to our ownership or prospect group, we can also then list the farms have already been purchased and people want to offload. We just take the regular real estate commission and honestly, you can choose your cap rate. Because honestly, I think depending on where inflation goes, depending on where the world goes in the next few years, I think two or three years from now, you could potentially be offering out your 18% farm at 10% and still find buyers. So it's your call, really. I know that the farms you're talking about are, are overseas. So you talked a little bit about general risk, but what are some of the risks? of investing overseas in farmland and how do the returns compare to U.S. farmland and why would I invest overseas rather than in the U.S.? 
simply because the U.S. farmland is not very profitable. Land is very expensive. Labor is very expensive. Most of the land, majority of it, is owned by mega wealthy farm owners or corporations or, frankly, hedge funds. And so if you were able to find land in the States that was reasonable cost, if you were able to find labor to tend to the farm, then you might eke out 3 to 5% over the long run. That's the reality of farming. That's why it's all mass scale. Whereas overseas, it's incredible because land is a lot cheaper, labor is a lot cheaper. The only difference is that the, some of the countries overseas, they all sell to their local markets. So in the case of these farms in Colombia, they are multi-generational farms, incredible agricultural capability over there but they've never had the know-how, knowledge, or capability to export to foreign markets. And that's what we do at Farmfolio. We take care of that. So we have the pack house. We send the container ship up to the port in Philadelphia. We have trucks that send it to distribution centers that then go to Walmart, Costco, Traders, Applesons, et cetera. The average Colombian farmer can't do that. So why did we go overseas? Because they have the best agricultural capability in the right climate zone, weather zone, and they just didn't know how to export to, let's say, US, Canada, and European markets, where people are paying top dollar in dollars and euros for that produce. And so really, we've, we've made this an arbitrage play. Take the cheapest fruit production location, export overseas, and charge top dollar that we're used to paying in an uh, average American supermarket. So that's why we can give you those returns, in all honesty. So I would love to diversify personally across U.S. farmland and international farmland, but there just isn't the product out there. It's classic because there are a few people out there trying to do it. And if you dig deep into their profiles, they'll claim, oh, you know, 8%. The reality is you're getting 1% for 10, 15 years. And the other 7% is actually based upon selling that land at the end of the project. They have no idea who they're going to sell it to. It's just mythical, made-up marketing math. <laughs> so if you're investing overseas, what do we need to know about local property laws, local jurisdictions, all that? If we're, if we're in these foreign countries, what are the risks there with not knowing anything about you know, their legal system? Yeah, it's important you choose the right country. So in the case of Colombia, as an example, because we have farms, and this is one of the reasons we're there. You have exactly the same foreign property ownership rights as a foreigner, as a Colombian would. And so you take title just in the same way. In other countries, I mean, like, you know, Brazil, there's crazy rules about the fact that only 3% of uh, beach facing land can be owned by foreigners. I mean, there's all these kind of, let's call it titling and ownership rules based upon the country you're in. So you absolutely need to do due diligence that it not only allows foreign ownership, that you have the legal infrastructure in those countries to apply those ownership rights. And as importantly, there are no capital controls in money coming in and out of the country. So in the case of Brazil, for instance, you need to tell somebody, here's the capital coming in, tell the government, make sure it goes through an escrow agent, and make sure you can then bring that out in the future years if you need to do that. There's, there's, there's all these kind of aspects around it based upon the country you're trying to deal with. When I look at a multifamily apartment deal, you know, at Left Field Investors, we have a deal analyzer. We have all this stuff that can help us decide, is this a good deal? 
I have all kinds of questions I ask the sponsors beforehand so I can evaluate the sponsor. I'm getting more familiar with different markets so I can decide if I want to invest in Dallas or Atlanta. So my question here is, how do I analyze these deals? I How do I analyze the sponsor? How do I determine whether I go with Columbia or Belize? And how do I pick which asset classes? You know, Am I doing limes or coconuts? How do I analyze the deal? When you send something to me, how do I decide if that's worth investing in? Yeah, so I'm actually happy to uh, help any of your listeners here by giving you or sending them my risk matrix. Because in reality, you're right. When you look at a multifamily deal, it's spreadsheet driven, it's data driven. I can go to any myriad of tools, free data on the web and find out prices, rents, crime. We know the game. With these, you're in essence, we're investing in um, a private business. And therefore, I had to build a 10 category analysis matrix. And it kind of looks at product. You look at the crop itself, to your point. Why coconuts? Why limes? Why avocado? You have to look at the sales of this. Okay, are they already selling? Because one of the biggest problems with farmland is people, anybody can say, oh, I'm going to basically build a farm and sell it five years from now, but it's not based in reality. So you can look at farm folio and you can see the track record of the fruit sales to the major retailers across the US and Europe, as an example. Processing distribution logistics, customs, trade issues, you know, borders, customs control, global gap certification. Smeta, do your farms have these certifications that Walmart and other retailers demand for your fruit nowadays? So there's a whole area around the product which you can go into, and I say trust but verify. You're going to rely upon information coming from the asset manager or the company providing the farmland product, but you can then go to a lot of public websites in the same way you can put the data of rents, rentometer, or one of these websites. You can also go just so you know, to these public FDA sites and see how much fruit was being exported from those companies and see the the level of export capability and their track record. So area one is product. Area two is the investment itself, the location, you know, to your point, the country. Politically, is it is it safe? Economically, is it a growing economy? What currency is being used? What's the history of the currency? Environmentally, is an area you look at weather, water, soils, the entity structure you're going into. If it's a syndication, where's the entity itself? Is it a Cayman Islands entity? Is it something different? If it's in the case of titling a plot of land like we do, do you have those foreign ownership property rights of any average uh, person in that country? And then really just a full model review around the financials like you would. Capital buffer, returns, projections, all the stuff you do if you're a sensible analyzer of any kind of ownership opportunity. So number one is product. Number two is the investment vehicle itself and everything around the country and location. Number three is classic. It's the team. You need to find teams that are interdisciplinary. Farming knowledge, locals in that country. I cannot stress enough. People always fall for these, no offense, American marketing people who move to Belize or move to some country claim to know what they're doing. And they are just a gringo like you and me. Nine times out of 10, if they weren't brought up in that culture, if they aren't locals on the team, they're going to get ripped off like you and I would if we tried it. So look for the teams to be multidisciplinary around 
financials, around farm management, around agriculture, around export capability, around fruit sales and distribution, but also look for, you know, let's call it Americans, Canadians, British people who know what they're doing from a business standpoint, especially in the export markets directly, but supported by incredible, capable, multi-generational Colombians in this case, who know how to farm on the ground and uh, work within that culture. Hey, Left Builders, this is Julian McClurkin from Tribe Vest. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pfeiffer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up Tribe Vest on YouTube. I'll see you there. So if I were to invest in farmland, it's diversifying my portfolio in general because I'm in a lot of U.S. real estate. So I would have diversification just by doing the farmland and the fact that it's overseas. But then my next question would be, how do I diversify within that farmland bucket? Right? Am I just doing limes and coconuts or there are other things other opportunities to invest overseas in, in the farmland? Well, so there are. You'll see quite a few providers out there. Finding the top quality providers is difficult because as you go through my risk matrix, you'll realize there are holes in their capability. Either they're really good farming people who don't know how to export and sell, or they're really good export and sales people that don't know how to farm. <laughs> so again, you know, it's, um, but from, from a product mix, so we're going down the path of we have lime and coconut today. We're going to be offering teak which is an incredible forestry product. And then we'll have avocados next year. But really the goal is to kind of look at your asset allocation and say, listen, if I want my 100% of my assets, you know, keep 10% in cash, maybe 25, 30% in the stock market. Let's take the final 60%. Let's maybe do 30, 40% in multifamily value-add syndications in the US. Consistent appreciation and cash flow. And then let's take the final 20%. And put it across three or four crops in different farms in different locations and diversify that across that farm product. And I think with that, you end up with what is a, you know, frankly, balanced, not even counter-cyclical, uncorrelated wealth profile to your point. And honestly, I've got 40% of my wealth overseas. I'm British with American passport now, so I'm dual citizen. But my 40% is overseas because I just don't know what's going to happen in my life and my children's lives in this country, given the debt this country is taking on. So for me, the 40% overseas is the get out of a jam situation if the worst case scenario occurs here. Right. You talked a little bit about some of the general risks when we first started. Can you talk about climate change and the effect of that on, on crops? And, you know, we're seeing fires everywhere in the West Coast and and, uh, and and that kind of thing. So can you talk about how that affects at least the farms that you're looking at and how that enters into your underwriting and risk analysis? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll, I'll give one concrete example, which everybody will get. Okay, why did I choose Columbia? Why did I choose to join a company that's based in Columbia from a farming standpoint? Well, let's take a standard weather pattern, hurricanes. So as we all know now, living in America, those hurricanes come in Across the Caribbean, you know, they'll wipe out Haiti or Puerto Rico like Maria did one time. They'll either come down into Houston or New Orleans 
or they'll sweep up the East Coast, hit Florida, and or sweep all the way up towards New York Sandy. We know these weather patterns. The beauty of Colombia is if you look at a world map and look at South America, the tip of South America protects Colombia from hurricanes. That whole hurricane path happens in the States only. And so you need to kind of look at these from a, let's call it, risk standpoint and say, okay, based upon earthquakes, floods, hurricanes, you know, whatever the flavor of thing is, tornadoes you know, in the Midwest, you've really got to look at these major, let's call it risks, and analyze where it's best worldwide to look for those farms to avoid majority of those. And therefore, Columbia does not suffer any of those risks. Now then, let's talk about water. Because as we know, I'm not going to get into the belief system of climate change, but and whether it's short-term or long-term, the weather is changing. I've lived in Denver this summer, and I was suffering smoke, ashy air from the California fires. That's not a great place to live, never mind have your farms. But from my perspective, therefore, we look at the right locations in the world that are good for farming. Now, the beauty of Colombia, as you're probably aware, listeners will know about Colombian coffee. This place called the Coffee Triangle, Kindaya region, middle of the country. And the reason we have three or four of our initial farms in that region is because it's high altitude, 1,100 meters in altitude. And so you have this perfect climate there, whereby in the morning you get amazing sunshine, in the afternoons you get rainfall. There's no need for irrigation on those farms because the climate is perfect. There are no long, dry seasons. And so you need to look at weather patterns, soils, you know, in that perspective to understand where the best locations in the world, longitude, latitude, altitude, and then rainfall weather patterns to really choose the right farming locations. And so, yes, would I buy a farm in California today? Probably not. Water and weather is an issue. Would I, by the way, I mean, the big joke in the UK right now is that they're starting to grow champagne in the south of the country that you couldn't, you know, you had to go to France in the past, but now the weather's kind of, it's getting hotter in the UK. Ironically, you know, rainy, dreary England that I grew up in as a child may become an amazing place to live in the future because it's getting hotter and the weather's improving. <laughs> but you get my point. You need to look at this um, in the same way that I'd look at, let's say I'm investing in multifamily, I'd look at the macro, micro. Macro is their population growth in that MSA. Are the rents going up? Are the values of home and condos going up? Is the crime going down? You'd look at that on both a macro city level and a micro neighborhood or zip code level. And you need to do a similar thing with weather in the farming location where those farms exist. And really, that's the way to think about that as the parallel analysis track. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So most of the real estate that I participate in now has some component of leverage that helps amplify the returns. Is there any leverage opportunities here? Is there any financing that happens? Is there a return of capital that happens? Any, anything like that similar to some of the things we're more familiar with? So right now, the answer is no, but we're working on it because we realize that people want to leverage. And so we'll, for instance, sell a lime lot. And depending on the age and maturity of the trees and therefore the cash flow amount, you'll pay between $35,000 and $45,000 on average for those lots. Now, in some ways, in today's single-family home environment, that's kind of the deposit on a 150 grand home in Texas or Florida, isn't it? So it's all cash. I know some people want to lever their assets, and so, yeah, we're working on that. 
and we're trying to find some lenders who will let you buy three lots for the price of one and incorporate some of that, you know, long-term leverage into the equation. So, so watch this space is my is my statement. And that sounds great. No, I'm very interested in that. So this has been a great conversation. As I said in the, in the beginning, you know, we're not, we're not that familiar with farm and farmland. And then you combine that with overseas and it just seems risky, but the way you explain it, you know, it probably does have a place in your portfolio to have a little bit of overseas exposure, have a little bit of farmland exposure. And this is a good way to get, to get a little bit of both. So my final question, and this of course doesn't relate to farming necessarily, but um, can you share with us a, a podcast that you listen to that you really like and, and that our listeners might, might like as well? So I'm actually guesting in another hour or so on the Old Dog Real Estate podcast. So there's a bunch of um, great podcasts out there. I mean, I, if I had no job, I would listen to podcasts all day long <laughs> because <laughs> it truly has been an accelerator of my knowledge and therefore my wealth over the past 10 years. So yeah, Old Dog's Real Estate podcast. Give it a listen. Uh, you'll learn a lot more around the real estate asset class. And uh, yeah, that's the key. Okay, awesome. I'll definitely uh, put that one in the show notes. And then you said you would share that risk matrix with me that I can share with our listeners as well? Yes, absolutely happy to. One of my goals is educationally. I don't care if you buy farmland from Farmfolio and myself or not. What I care about is you don't get suckered like I did early in my journey on a piece of farmland where they had no business being in the farming business. So please, yeah. I'm, I'm sharing the love because I think farmland's a great asset class. And like every asset class, there are bad providers and great providers. And uh, my risk matrix will actually help you stay out of dodge. That's the goal. Well, that's fantastic. And that, that's part of what having a network and having community is all about, right? Is helping each other and making sure that we're learning together, growing together, and, and hopefully making some money together. So how can our listeners get in touch with you if they want to contact you? Yep. So I'm happy to send me an email. My name is Peter at farmfolio.net. And obviously our website is farmfolio.net, F-A-R-M-F-O-L-I-O.net. And our goal is to make farmland ownership easy for everyone. I hope you all have a farmfolio within your portfolio. Fantastic. I will put all of that in the show notes along with the risk matrix. So thank you so much, Peter, for being here. This was a great episode and uh, we'll talk again soon for sure. Thanks, Jim. It's a pleasure. That was a nice conversation with Peter learning about farmland. It is something new. I'm in a couple of small farm investments in the U.S. that haven't paid much like Peter was talking about. I'm in a couple others overseas, one in Belize and one in Panama. And those are kind of like development deals where nothing's happened on them yet. Maybe they'll pay out, but it's been three or four years and the crops haven't been produced yet. So I'm, I'm really interested in his approach where some of these investments, you can get cash flow pretty quickly. And then within you know 14 months to a couple of years, you might be cash flowing in the team. So these are really interesting investments to me. And it does offer diversification. I'm always looking for new asset classes, new operators, and new markets. And, and this kind of hits all of those at once. I think it makes sense to kind of start slow in something new instead of chasing the shiny object, which is something I, uh, I struggle with. But I definitely will consider uh, getting into one of these deals I haven't yet. But I really appreciated Peter's outlook and chatting with him. And I'll definitely be catching up with him in the future.
Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.